Well, you know, some individuals have been entrusted with an experience that was never meant to be kept to themselves. It was meant to be shared with the world. And such is the case with Don Piper. And Don is our special guest with us today here to tell us his story. He's been stewarding his story well for many years, telling it wherever he goes, writing it in books. By the way, how many of you have read 90 Minutes in Heaven? Can I see your hands? Okay, a good number of you. Still some holdouts, Don. Maybe we'll get you this weekend. But um, (laughs) that's exactly right. Let's give a warm Midwestern welcome to our good friend Don Piper. Thanks, Pastor, so much for that warm welcome. We've ex- received a warm welcome at every level since we've been here. We got here uh, yesterday afternoon. We had a wonderful service last night and one already today. So we've got a, we, we've set the bar very high, haven't we? Well, we're delighted to be here. One of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is hospitality. You know, that's not a gift that's talked about very much, but it's in the Bible. You can read it. And, uh, you have it. We've experienced it here at New Life. Um, I'm usually not in a church very long, and I, I can kind of figure out whether something's happening there or not, and it's happening here. I'm reminded uh, of a fellow that saw the Grand Canyon for the first time in person, and his exclamation was, wow, something big happened here. <laughs> and uh, I feel that way about this place, that something big happened here, and I suspect that it's going to continue to happen if the Lord delays his return. If you live in this area and you don't have a place to go to church or that's not been your custom, let me encourage you to come back here uh, because something big is happening here. And uh, frankly, you need them and they need you. So I encourage you to come back when I'm not here because uh, you may not be aware of this, but they do this every week. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so come back. You'll, you'll, you'll enjoy it. And uh, thank you all for letting us come. What a great uh, church staff you have here. I got to meet most of them, and you're highly blessed to have these folks in leadership at this church. Uh, what I've been asked to do is talk about the book that the pastor just referenced, uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven. As I told our other audiences, I wrote this book so I would never have to talk about it. Um, <clears throat> in fact, the first line of the book is, I wrote this book in self-defense. And by that I meant, if I write it, would you not ask me about this anymore? Because I really don't want to go here again. But you know, God has a different plan from us often, if you haven't noticed. And uh, if, you're, if you're obedient, it doesn't really matter much whether you think it's a good idea or not. It's, it's His idea. And if you do that, it will, sh- it will be sure to matter. So I, I'm honored to be able to talk to you about the book today. And uh, as was referenced, uh, there are some out in the, in the uh, lobby out there. Uh, we have the book in a lot of different forms, including a, a new children's edition of 90 Minutes in Heaven, just for kids. And there's an audio book out there and a large print book and Spanish books and stuff like that. And then there are a couple of other books that I wrote uh, that are here uh, today, Daily Devotions, which is exactly what it says it is, 90 Devotions. In fact, somebody came by and asked me, between the services, when you were in heaven, did you see any animals? That's my number one question that I get asked. Uh, it is uh, my number one question. And it really is kind of very personal to me because my wife just bought a dog last week and... Uh, I'm not sure I like this dog, but um, 
It's early. You know, it's early. Yeah. Pray for me. Um, but I wrote a chapter in this book, uh, Daily Devotions, called Animals in Heaven. Because <laughs> I get asked that question a long time, and I, I kind of put in here why I think they're there. But uh, uh, that's, that's, this book has a, has a devotional for every day, for 90 days. And then the final book that's out on the table out there is called Heaven is Real, Lessons on Earthly Joy. And the reason I'm taking time to do this is because invariably they go out to the table and say, what's this book about? So I'm kind of telling you, this book is for people who've gone through a tragedy, a disaster. They're going through it now. They're, they're in pain. They're suffering because I know what that feels like. And I really had a burden about that. I really wanted to write this book because I met so many people who have had the wind taken out of their sails. And uh, I want to try to help them. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. He meant now. I'm not talking about health and wealth. I'm talking about a better life. And I believe that if you know where you're going, you should be having a better trip on the way. That's what this book is about. Lessons on earthly joy. And there's some other things out there. CDs of this message and, and DVDs and stuff. And I think a few of these new heaven albums of uh, recorded music about heaven. Um, one of which uh, Chris, who's working the PowerPoint today, um, wrote a very tender, uh, touching song. Right before Jesus died, um, and we just kind of commemorated that a couple of weeks ago on Easter, he, he obviously had a great burden for people who were troubled, you know, heart sick, uh, going through a dark period. And sooner or later, that's all of us, isn't it? I mean, we, we, uh, we have difficulties. And, and it's altogether possible in a group this size that, that a lot of you are struggling with that today. <clears throat> Your hearts are not quite where you want them to be. You, you really are going through a dark night. And he knew we would need encouragement following his departure in the flesh. And so he gathered his uh, followers one last time. They'd been with him three and a half years. And he had taught them much, and some they actually listened to. Uh, and, and then later on they remembered it because it was brought to their mind. But he knew they would need encouragement. So right before he died, on the cross, he gave them some encouraging words that ring out through the ages until this very morning here in Ohio. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God? Believe in me also, he said. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you will be also. And you know where I'm going, and you know how to get there. He told them, but they weren't listening. In fact, one of them stood up at that point, because they were sitting at probably a very low table here at what we now call the Last Supper. Thomas stood up, and Thomas gets a bum rap. You know, I think we call him a doubter, and I think he was more of a questioner. And I think that's good. In fact, that may be what you are today. You came to church out of curiosity. You have a question. And your question may very well be this one. How do we get to heaven? That's what Thomas asked. How do we get there? It's a great question. And Jesus responded with these words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father except through me. So if you're here this morning and you're looking for heaven or eternal life, Jesus is that. If you're looking for a better life, 
he is that. Eternal life now and um, a, a, a eternal, eternal life someday and a better life now. And if you're looking for the truth, you found him if you found Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. You go out to the Columbus Airport, which we will later on today, you'll see those big screens displayed out there. And you'll notice, uh, we're going back to Houston where I live, and it's been great to see the fireballs. Uh, we served in Pasadena uh, in sister churches for several years. Well, we're going to Houston, and if, if you look at the big screens, you'll notice that all the flights out of Columbus do not go to Houston. Have you noticed this? I mean, if you want to go to Houston, what are you going to have to have? A ticket for Houston. That's the only way you can get there. You can't just go up the counter and say, I, I, I just need a ticket, please. Well, they'll say, well, where do you want to go? You have to tell them, and you have to get a ticket for that place. And a lot of people think that if you're just faithful to something, if you'll just follow some kind of belief system, and you'll try to live a good life, that that will get you into heaven. And, and, it, and it won't. Because Jesus was very clear in his discourse about the reality of heaven and how to get there. He said, no man comes into the Father except through me. He, and the Bible says, there is no other name under heaven or earth whereby you might be saved. So all paths do not lead to heaven. One path leads to heaven. Jesus is the way. See, I found out the very hard way. 21 years ago right now, I was in a hospital in Houston. St. Luke's, and I had already been in Herman, but I was in St. Luke's, and you know, they never expected me to leave that hospital, and if they did uh, expect me to leave, they knew I would be in the back of an ambulance, and I was. I had already been there for months. You see, I had a wreck on my way to church. Yeah. Pastor's Conference in East Texas in January 1989. Uh, it ended on a Wednesday morning after three days, and we were all headed home. I drove out to the conference center gates at Trinity Pines camp, and I made a big decision at the gates. I decided to go home a different way. I'd been to this camp many times before, but if you go out to the gates of the conference center, you're going to have to turn one way or the other. My previous trips, I turned to the left. That morning, I turned to the right out of curiosity. Never been that way before, and I only went that way because I'd never seen it before. I thought there might be something down there that would be interesting to me, and that actually may be why you're in church today. Curiosity. Great reason to come to church. In fact, you just may have heard they had a dead guy down the church and you wanted to go see him. <laughs> I think that's a good reason to come to church. Well, I turned to the right, and, and if you go that way, you have to cross a lake. It's a big lake. Uh, it's called Lake Livingston, and, and there's a long elevated highway across the lake. At least there was in those days, 21 years ago. There's a big bridge that you have to cross at the end of that highway. And it used to be over a lake bed before they dammed up the river to make the Trinity River, to make this big lake. And so I'm looking at the, at the bridge, and I'm about to cross it, and it's 35 degrees or so, near freezing, and it's raining. It's a miserable day. But I'm on my way to church, so I'm, I'm fired up. I've just come from a pastor's conference. We're kind of worked up, you know. I've gone there at the pastor's conference. I think when you're through learning, you're through. So I went to learn some stuff, and I had it. I was ready to go back and fire up the troops. And I'm driving across the bridge, and... Uh, I'm about 30 feet from the end of the bridge, and coming from the opposite direction on that cold, rainy day was an 18-wheeler, tractor-trailer truck, owned by the Texas Department of Corrections. It was a prison truck driven by an inmate, and he was a trustee. The regular driver didn't show up that day, so they asked for volunteers, and he said, I can drive a truck. He couldn't, but they gave him the, t the keys anyway, and he came over a hill not very far from the gates of, the of his prison, 
And I was not very far from the gates of my conference center. And he came down at a high rate of speed, about 25 miles an hour over the speed limit. He said when he crested the hill and looked down at the bridge, there was a slow-moving car, and now he has to make a decision. Remember mine? Right to the left. His decision, I'm going to hit the back of this car. There's no way I can slow this truck down going downhill this fast. Or perhaps I could go around it. I can't see anything traffic coming because the bridge superstructure was in the way. Uh, I'll just... I'll go around it. That was his decision, snap decision. He went around it. When he did, he hit me head on. I was driving an 86 Ford Escort. He drove that truck right over the top of me, just crushing it, shoving it up against the railing of the bridge. He went off the back, swerved back over into his lane, hit the car he was trying to miss, and then hit another car before he finally brought this rig to a halt. Four vehicles involved in a terrible accident on that old bridge. I was on the bridge a few Months ago, taping a television show called Dateline NBC. I think they're going to air it next month. I'm not sure. But it's on life after death. And so I was actually at this very spot where this accident occurred. Very strange, very eerie to be there where my life changed forever. Well, uh, it took a long time for help to arrive because it's a very isolated area. Four ambulances eventually came from different jurisdictions. Police showed up from different jurisdictions, and they began to work the accident. And the news initially was not bad because the other three victims were okay. They were examined and released. That meant that the four EMTs who came and the four ambulances had a chance to work on me because I was not okay. They did everything they knew to do, everything they'd been trained to do, and maybe a few more things that they just heard about. Whatever, they did everything they tried to do to resuscitate me. They were unsuccessful. I was pronounced dead on the scene, which I find brings up a fascinating question. What am I doing in Ohio? (laughs) You're laughing, but I can ask you the same question. But let me ask it this way, because here's the way I mean it, not the way you heard it. What are you doing in Ohio? Well, the body was covered up with a tarp. They said it was to keep out the rain, but mostly it was so nobody would have to look at me because it was a bloodbath in this car. Gruesome. So they're waiting for a medical examiner to come to the scene. They've tried to contact him. They're having difficulty tracking him down. It's got to be an investigation when there's a fatality, and they they can't find him. So they can't move me. Uh, So traffic begins to back up for miles in both directions. Behind me are about 200 or so pastors who have the same intention that I did go to their church and lead a Wednesday night Bible study. But they're not going anywhere now. So they began to pile up back there, and one of them actually left the uh, car, his car, and his, he and his wife walked up to the bridge. They had been keynote speakers at the conference, Dick and Anita on a record. They, I didn't get to meet them at the conference, but I heard them speak. They didn't know me, and frankly, anybody who knew me wouldn't have recognized me that day. Dick walked up to the bridge, saw the accident, approaches the policeman in charge, and he says, my name is Dick Honorecker. I'm a pastor in Houston, and I see this been an awful wreck here. Uh, is there anyone I can pray for? No, said the policeman. There's no one to pray for. Not denying prayer. He just didn't think there was anybody to pray for. The other victims were okay, and the man in the red car, that would have been me, is dead. He didn't make it. When he said that, the policeman, God spoke to the pastor directly. You know, I think God's doing a lot more speaking than we are listening. But that day, 
God was speaking and this pastor was listening, and I think that's a good thing. I want a pastor that listens to God. And here's what he said, God said to the pastor, pray for the man in the red car. Pray for the man in the red car. This made no sense to him. He never thought about praying for a dead man. But he knew God was telling him this, and so he wasn't as interested in theology that day as he was obedience. Just doing what God tells you to do. It's always the right thing if God's doing the telling. So he says to the policeman, I need to pray for the man in the red car. And the policeman essentially says, did you hear what I said? He didn't make it. Well, I've got to pray for him because God's told me to pray for him. All right, sir, go right ahead. No, no, I want to get in the car and pray for him. You can't do that. If you want to pray, you'll have to do it over to here. The car is mangled. It's broken glass. If you get near the car, you could get hurt. Now, that picture was taken at the wrecking yard after the car was towed. The, the truck just went right over the top of the car. The roof has been removed and put back on in that picture. Uh, and there's no way he could get near me from the front or the side, so Dick came around from the back. Well, before that, there'd been a little conversation about why Dick was even allowed to get in the car. See, the, pa- the uh, policeman said, you don't want to see what it looks like under the tarp. It is gruesome. Dick Allerecker said, you don't understand, officer. I was an Army medic in Vietnam. That's not going to bother me. I've got to put my hand on him and pray for him. Well, when he lifted the tarp and he started doing the examination, because of his mental, medical background, he discovered that the only thing I didn't break in the accident was my right arm. That is the only thing I didn't break in the accident. Chris says the reason I didn't break my right arm is so I could sign books, but I don't think that's true. <laughs> it sounds good, though, doesn't it? So Dick reaches around the, uh, the, the seat where the body is, and it's just the body because I'm absent from the body and present with the Lord. It's the earth suit that you're sitting in right now. So he reaches around the seat, and he puts his hand on my right shoulder because that's the only thing I didn't break, and he begins to pray for me under the tarp in the dark, even though it's the middle of the day. And he is not alone now in prayer because they did search me so they could identify who I was. And they called my home uh, down in a town called Friendswood, south of Houston. Friendswood was founded by Quakers, therefore the name Friendswood. And so I was living in that town and serving in a church in Alvin, south of Houston. And they called my home. My wife was not at home. She, she retired this past year in June after 34 years in the classroom as a teacher. She was at school that day. She decided at the last minute before this conference that she would not attend with me. It was too close to the beginning of the semester, and she didn't want to miss any days, or she would have been in the car that day. So she was at school, thankfully. She is the hero of this story, not me. She took care of three children, ran back and forth at the hospital every day, slept on a cot beside me at night. She balanced the checkbook, graded papers, and empty bedpans. She is a hero. I'm not. Well, she was at school. Our children were at school. And so they called the church because they didn't find my business card in my wallet, South Park Church in Alvin. So they called the church, and they told the church I had been in a terrible accident. And the church said, well, he's on his way here right now. Well, he's been in a bad accident. Uh, We can't tell you on the phone what happened. But we are making arrangements to send someone there to give you the details. Could you get his family together and the church staff together? Because we're going to give you the details as soon as we can get someone there. What they didn't want to do is tell him on the phone that I had died. So all the church knows and all my family knows is I've been in a bad accident. And so you know what they did. Really the only thing they could think of. They started praying too. But they didn't just pray themselves. 
One of the staff members says, let's get the Houston phone book out and start calling every church in the phone book. Well, that's a tall order, four million people. But they just tore out pages and started handing them out. And they started calling every church, and they started calling every other church. And this just began to spread like wildfire across that area into neighboring states and then across the United States. I know a lot of churches here in Ohio that prayed for me that morning. And in foreign countries, and thousands upon thousands of people joined in prayer. Most of these people did not know me. They never heard of me until that morning. And I really think one of the best things that happened as a result of this accident is that a lot of people who hadn't prayed in a long time started praying that day. They got down on their faces, they got down on their knees, and they're lifting up their petitions to the throne of God on my behalf, even though they don't know who I am. And I don't know they're praying down here because I was at the throne of God, absent from the body and present with the Lord. That's what the Bible says happens, and I can testify that is what happened. So I didn't know they were praying. If I'd have known they were praying, I would have told them to stop. Because if you've been there, you don't want to be here. But you know, that wasn't my call. They were, they were begging God for me to live and have some quality of life if I did. They don't know I'm already dead. One man knows this. He's in the car with the body, holding onto my right shoulder, doing what God told him to do, pray for the man in the red car. And his songs, his, his prayers now are alternating between songs and verbal prayers. By songs, I mean prayers put to music, because a lot of the old hymns are prayers put to music. And he's singing one that you've probably heard. What a friend we have in Jesus. This is about a 150-year-old song. It was written by a man from Canada by way of Ireland. He was an Irishman, had a terrible life back in Ireland, lost two fiancés right before he got married to them. One was in a horseback accident. The other one died of scarlet fever. He left Canada, moved to Ireland, or he left Ireland, moved to Canada because he was just so distraught and in his, his loneliness and receiving word that his mother was very near death back in Ireland, he sat down one night and decided that even though he felt very lonely and isolated, he always had a friend in Jesus. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer, he wrote. What a friend we have in Jesus. Dick Hartwinkler singing that song over my dead body, holding onto my right shoulder under the tarp in the dark. Ninety minutes now have passed since the truck struck me and killed me. People are praying all over the world. He's singing that hymn under that tarp in the dark. And suddenly, without any warning at all, I started singing the song with him. He got out of the car, pronto. Yeah, yeah you would have too. Yeah, he ran over to the policeman and said something really preposterous. The dead man is singing. And uh, nobody believed him. It's not believable. I wouldn't have believed him. And so he's got to convince them to come and check on me. Uh, they, three of the ambulances have left. The last one was remaining. It's packed. It's leaving. The other vehicle standing by to take away the body wasn't an ambulance. So he's got to convince them to do that. He does. They come over and check on me. They find out that I am alive, not very alive but i'm alive and then they had to get me out of that car that you saw that took some doing removing a living person's very different from removing someone who's not they had to order additional equipment out to the bridge from 35 miles away to break open the car and take the roof from the car they eventually did that they put me in an ambulance the last one and then they took me to a series of hospitals one's about 15 miles away it's called trinity 
It's really not much more than a clinic, but certainly they couldn't help me there. The decision was made to take me to a hospital 35 miles away in Huntsville uh, on I-45 between Dallas and Houston. And there they determined I was in grave condition. The only chance I might have for survival would be to be life-flighted to a level one trauma center. The nearest one was in Houston, Texas, 85 miles away. They ordered a helicopter to transport me to Memorial Hermann Hospital. That was not to be. The weather was too bad that day, and helicopters could not take off and land. So I found myself in an ambulance careening down I-45 on my way to Houston, weaving in and out of traffic, siren blaring. And by that time in the afternoon, the shock had worn off. And in spite of all the medications they gave me, I did not know that it was humanly possible to hurt like that. I had so many broken bones and open gaping wounds. Every time my heart would beat, it would be like hitting those places with a hammer. I said to the young EMT in the back of the ambulance with me, through my oxygen mask, Sir, is there any way you could give me something for pain, please? And he said, No. I've given you everything I can. If I give you anything else from pain, any other medications, you'll probably just pass out. Well, that's kind of what I'm shooting for. I, I would like to pass out. Well, he was just following orders. You know, what the doctors did not want to happen in that ambulance and transport was for me to lose consciousness again. They were afraid if I did, he wouldn't be able to get me back, and I would be really gone by the time I got to Houston. So he was following orders, and I, we drove along a little further, and I kept hearing these screams in the ambulance, horrible, blood-curdling screams. Oh! And I... I said to him through my mask one more time, Sir, if you can't give me something for pain, could you make those people stop screaming, please? It's very disturbing to me. This time he put his hand on my shoulder, the only thing I didn't break, and he had tears in his eyes. Only you know, God only knows what he had seen in his career, what, what folks that are in the are EMTs and doctors and nurses and people like that see. But they have a heart, you know, for doing this, and he was very moved. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Sir, Mr. Piper, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, but beside the driver and me, there is no one else in the ambulance but you. I'm sorry, but you are the one who's screaming. I was a 38-year-old pastor on my way to church, and now I'm in the back of an ambulance, and I'm screaming, and I don't even know it's me. I don't think I've ever been more frightened in my life at, than I was at that moment because I knew from then on I would never be the same again. That accident happened at 11.45. We arrived at Herman Hospital in Houston at 6.15 p.m. that evening. I would be in a hospital bed from that moment on for 13 months. I would have 34 major operations to reassemble me as best they knew how. And here are a couple of things I think are worth pointing out, pointing out about this whole episode. The first one is this. I believe God answers prayer. And number two, I believe God's still in the miracle business. My life is a testimony to both of those things. I had nothing to do with my survival. People asked God for me to live, and he said yes. And I know you know this. Sometimes he says no. That same discourse I... I quoted to you earlier, let not your hearts be troubled. Further on in chapter 
14 of John's Gospel, it says this, if you ask it in my name, I will do it, Jesus said. But I've lived long enough that I'm glad God answered some of my prayers no, because if I'd have got what I asked for, it would have been a disaster. I was speaking in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where my publisher is, and it was a large group like this, and they had a question and answer session afterward. A lady stood up right over here after I shared my testimony, and she says, I need to ask you a question. I said, yes, ma'am, what is your question? She said, I had a 16-year-old boy. He was the delight of my life. He was in a terrible accident like yours, Mr. Piper. He was in a coma for six weeks, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people prayed for him. And he died. Why did God answer the prayers of the people who prayed for you and not answer the prayers of the people who prayed for my boy? I thought that was a good question, especially in front of a couple thousand people. I said to her, Ma'am, I am sorry for your temporary separation from your boy. Was he a Christian? Yes, absolutely. He's one of the most devoted young Christians I've ever known. I said, well, then the separation is real, but it won't last. I said, the very first time you ever held him, did you know where he came from? Yes, she smiled. I knew he was a gift from God. And I said, well, I want to express all the condolences I can on behalf of the people here. But I must say to you, he belonged to God before he belonged to you. You know, we think we own each other. And the truth is, we're only loaned to each other. We belong to God first. And he allows us to share ourselves with someone else. But we're his first, whether we acknowledge it or not. And the Bible says the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I said, ma'am, God's taking good care of your boy. I know you miss him, but I've got to tell you, he's having the best time. And he knows you're coming. And please accept our comfort and encouragement. May the comforter come upon you in the coming days. You know, the separation is real, but it won't last. Sometimes the answer to our prayers is no. Because God has a different plan for mom. Sometimes it's later. Sometimes it's a better answer than the one you're looking for. But I believe God is faithful to answer prayers. I am an answered prayer. I'm only here because a lot of people ask God to spare me, to save me, and give me some quality of life. And he said yes. With that in mind, because I believe in answered prayer, let me ask you a question about prayer. What do you suppose would happen in Ohio if you decided to pray for people who are not ready for heaven with the kind of passion Dick Honorecker did over my dead body. Let me suggest if you prayed that way, a revival would start in Ohio. Why not Ohio? Why not now? It starts with prayer. So I'm calling you to prayer today. Every one of you can think of somebody that you love here that you're not sure is going there. Pray for them by name. Specific prayers bring specific answers. I just want to encourage you to pray. No matter what, God wants to hear from his children. That's what prayer is. You know, I also believe in miracles. I, I had a lot of them happen in my life. Hey, did you know that Dick and Ernita Honorecker left the conference ahead of me that morning? Yeah. And Anita says to her husband, because it was cold and rainy, uh, Dick, do you think we could stop and maybe get some coffee or something? I'm very cold. He said, there's a Dairy Queen right up here. They pulled over and had coffee. While they were having coffee, I drove past them into eternity. The only reason they were behind me, to pray for me, instead of in front of me, was the price of one cup of coffee. That's how much my life is worth. 
Of course, if it's Starbucks, that's about Starbucks is six or seven dollars. <laughs> you know, but Jesus figured it was worth a lot more than that because he died for me and you. During this long time in the hospital, at least four or five days into it, I developed double pneumonia. You know how deadly that can be. Forget my injuries. I've got double pneumonia. I'm about, I'm in critical condition, grave condition. It's off the scale. My wife is brought in and she said, Mrs. Piper, in spite of everything we've done to try to stabilize her husband, he's not going to make it through the night unless we do something else. And what we're proposing is, since he cannot be elevated to receive breathing treatments, is removing all the things we've already reattached. Because he's in traction and we can't set him up. So we're going to have to amputate everything. Or there's a slim chance we can try a new device that's never been applied in the United States before. It's called an Elizarov after the doctor that invented it from Siberia. And it involves encapsulating your husband's legs in stainless steel halos. They'll wrap them around his legs, and then they'll put wires and rods through those bones and flesh out the other side. And it'll look something like that. That is one-third of the one they applied to my Left leg. Every one of those big wires is where they put a wire through me and out the other side. The leg was down the middle. And if we do this, we'll be able to stabilize this leg. And we'll turn screws four times a day and stretch the bones that are still inside. And hopefully they'll meet again one of these days. Because I lost four inches of femur in the accident. It was ejected from the car and never found. My, my right leg was broken right at the knee. My left arm wound up in the back seat of the car. When I put my arm up like this when the truck was coming for me, it was separated at the shoulder and it went into my, it went behind me into the seat. From here forward, it was lying on the back seat of the car. I had blood coming out of my ears and eyes and nose, massive brain damage. I was impaled on the steering wheel. Internal injuries. So a lot of miraculous things had to happen for me to survive, first of all, and then learn to walk again. They told me I would never walk again. They told me I would never have the use of this arm. If... I used it, if they were able to attach it, I would have to pick it up and move it everywhere. But I guess you notice, after Steve introduced me today, I walked up here on the stage, both of these are my legs and this is my arm. You know why? God's still in the miracle business, that's why. The Bible says in Luke's Gospel, the things that are impossible with man are possible with God. So why should a miracle have, uh, matter to you? I mean, you see the picture, you think, well, it's a miracle that man survived that accident. It's a miracle that he's able to walk again. Absolutely. So besides saying, wow, what difference does it make? Because you may need one. That's why. And I, I said to the audience before, and I want to say it to you, you know, if God can resuscitate a dead man in a red car, can't he help somebody overcome an addiction? He said, well, that would be a miracle. You got it. It would. And God is able to do it. If God can resuscitate a dead man in a red car, he can help somebody make peace with their past. I had a lady in California at a women's conference. My wife and I were speaking. This woman came up afterwards and, and she said, I, I was, I led a very bad life when I was younger and, and I've been a Christian for about 10 years and I'm still learning about the Bible, and I'm still learning to try to follow God. She said, can I ask you a couple of questions? I said, ma'am, you can ask. I'm not sure I can answer them, but I'll try. She said, I had not one, not two, not three, but five abortions. And here are my questions for you, Mr. Piper. Is there any chance I'll ever see those babies again? And can God really forgive me for that? 
I held her hand. I said, ma'am, I got great news for you. The answer to both of your questions is a resounding yes. Yes. Because once again, they were God's before they were yours. And he is able to forgive you. He is. You see, that woman needed a a new life. She needed a miracle. Only a miracle was, was going to help her overcome this, and that is a miracle. Maybe you need a miracle today. Maybe you need to overcome the loss of someone that you've loved and lost for just a little while. Because the separation is temporary if we know where they are. But it hurts. I know it hurts. You know, I was speaking in Virginia, and I looked down the line, and there were people crying in the book signing line. And I thought, oh, my, I wonder what's going on down there. When they got up to the table, I found out what was going on. They were all parents of Virginia Tech students murdered on the campus of the university. You know what they're doing now? They're raising money for scholarships for kids who can't go to college. I met a lot of people like them who've been knocked down by the circumstances of life, but they decided to get up. They decided to do something positive. I met a lady whose husband was killed in a a speedboat accident, and she found out after he died in it, that in his wallet was a donation, organ donation card. She didn't know anything about it. He never told her, and, you know, it never came up because he, he didn't plan to die that day. She has now to make a decision about these organs because she's confronted now with his sudden death and, number two, with giving parts of him away. A lot of people counseled her, but it was her decision, and she eventually made that decision to do it. You know what that lady does now? She's the president of a regional group of organ donors association. See, she took the tragedy and turned it into a triumph. But it was hard. During these long months I was in the hospital, this is what it looked like. I wore that thing on my left leg for 11 months. I wore the thing on my left arm for eight months. You can see very dimly on the, one, on the bottom slide where my arm was surgically reattached. They did turn screws on that thing four times a day to try to stretch the four inches the bones that were missing to try to regrow the four inches of bone. You can see from my right leg there that they had to transplant all the skin or skin from my right leg to my left arm because there wasn't any. All the bones in this arm came from my right pelvis because they were missing. Medical people have a wonderful knack for finding things that you did not hurt and hurt that for you to fix the other stuff. (laughs) They do. I think God's still in the miracle business. And I want to pray for you today. you've come to the right place. But let me say this to you. It was tough. You can look at that picture and see that it was tough. I lay in that bed for 13 months. And then I had a couple of years of of rehab and, and, and all that stuff afterwards. It was a long, dark night. And maybe you're going through one now. See, I, I just got to the point one morning, I was just, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I had asked God a thousand times what this was, what was going on. Why, why did this happen? I was on my way to church. I wasn't in the wrong place. I wasn't doing something wrong. I was actually on my way to lead a Bible study. And so, God, show me why you're bringing me through this. And for goodness sakes, bring somebody into my life that can give me a word of encouragement. Because since nobody's ever worn one of these things before, I can't even talk to somebody and find out how it turned out. Just send someone like that, please. There wasn't anybody. Nobody ever worn one. So you know what he said instead? I love this. Through some music I was listening to, Here are the, here's the message I got that morning at 3 o'clock in that hospital room where you saw that picture. By myself, God spoke, and here's what he said. The only way you're ever going to be able to get through this is to decide this very morning that you're going to spend the rest of your life helping other people get through this. Wow, that was a direct hit for me. 
I, I realized that I was looking at it wrong. You see, I had been saying to God, why? And so many people do that, understandably, when a tragedy or a loss occurs, when the finances just fall completely apart. And so here's the options, and, I, and they're very clear. When the bottom falls out, when the night comes, you can shake your fist at God and say, why did you do this to me? Or you can use the very same hand and say to others, let me help you up. I understand how you feel. You see the difference? It's a big difference. Same hand. And some of us need to do that. Some of us need to turn the page of our lives because we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. And the options are very clear, bitter or better. But you'll have to decide it won't come naturally. You'll have to make that decision. Here's what I call it, turning your test into a testimony. Turning your mess into a message. Turning your pain into a purpose. Like those, those parents who are raising money for, for their, in the names of their children who died on the Virginia Tech campus. Like, like the wife who has now uh, making sure that ever the people donate their organs when she didn't even know that her husband was prepared to do that. Like the mother I know who lost her daughter to a drug overdose and then was so bitter about it, she just about hit the bottom until one day she realized that she could help other people. You know what? She founded a, 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 a grief support group that bears her daughter's name. That's what she does, help other parents who've lost their daughters to overdoses of drugs. I call it finding a new normal. I've made it my life's work. And let me suggest that some people in the room this size with this many people need to do the same thing. You may have been knocked down, but you haven't been knocked out. Unless you let yourself be, and it does involve a decision to move forward. Move forward and allow God to use you to bless someone else. There's some verses I thought were so important. I put them in this, this uh, book. Uh, and they're in 2 Corinthians. And I want to read them to you. Based on what I just said, listen to these verses. I pray that they will bless you. It's in uh, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Now listen. Listen closely. All praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source of every mercy and the God who comforts us. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When others are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. Or, I know how you feel. And together we'll get through this. God help you. You know what you need to do. When the big truck hit me, I was standing at the gates of heaven immediately. I didn't go down a long tunnel. I, I, I didn't have a near-death experience. When you're dead an hour and a half, you're not nearly dead. I, I was just there. I took my last breath here and my first breath there, just like that. And immediately, I'm standing at the gates of heaven. Revelation 21 says there's 12 of these gates, and I, of course, was only at one. And it was an awesome gate. But in front of the gate were a group of people who met me there. It was like a welcoming committee. And they were headed, the one directly in front of me, by my grandfather. I had been with him when he died. We were very close. My father was career army, and he spent the greater part of his life serving our country. He fought in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. He has the medals to show for it. He and people like him are the reason we're still here. 
And so he was gone most of the time, and that meant that my brothers and I needed someone desperately to kind of keep us in line and give us a role model, and that fell to my grandfather. Not my father's father, my mother's father. And he was awesome. He was a carpenter by trade. He had very little education because he grew up during the Depression, and he dropped out of school just to have something to eat. But I thought he was one of the smartest men I ever knew, and I still do. Papa is what I called him, and he he just adored us boys, and he we followed him around like puppies. He he just was a great role model. As I said, he was a carpenter, so you can imagine in 50 years of carpentry, he was pretty beat up. He had all the scars here on earth to show for it. Uh, the hardest night of my life, one of the hardest nights, was when I got a call from my mother, and when she said, come quick, Papa's dying. I rode with him in the ambulance to the hospital, and I was standing outside the door when the doctor came out and said, we did everything we could. I'm sorry. He died. I got a lot of broken bones, but nothing hurts like a broken heart. When Papa died, it broke my heart. But there he was at the gates of heaven, and boy, did he look good. If you want to look good, heaven is where you want to be. I mean, you look nice now, but you're going to look good in heaven. I mean, Papa reached his hands out to me, and he said, Welcome home, Donnie. He's the only one who would have done that. And I looked down at his hands, the old, gnarled, scarred hands with missing fingers, and they were all complete. He looked wonderful. Everybody in heaven is perfect in every way. My great-grandmother was standing over his shoulder, a victim of osteoporosis. She walked all of her known life. I, I, I knew her until I was 21 years old when she went to be with the Lord, and she always walked like this. She couldn't stand up straight because her bones had collapsed. She lost her teeth at an early age. She had some dentures, but she often did not wear them. But you know, when I saw her in heaven, she was standing upright, and she saw me and smiled at me. I thought she was attractive when she was here, but in heaven she was perfect. It's the first time I ever saw her real smile, and it was outstanding. Everybody there looked great. I had a guy in Louisiana stand up in the middle of a service like this, and she, he said, you said we'd be perfect in heaven. I said, yes, sir, we're perfect in heaven. He said, I want to know about hair. Excuse me, sir. Everybody looked at him. He was follically deprived. I said, I have to think about that. As best I can remember, everybody I saw in heaven had hair. And this is what he did. Praise God. And then, and then he sat down. That's all he wanted to know. I don't know what your priorities are today, but you're going to look good in heaven. See, it's a, it's a perfect place. No scars. In fact, the only person in heaven with scars is Jesus Christ to remind the rest of us of how we got there. I got scars all over me. I didn't have any in heaven. I mean, I got scars all over me. None in heaven. You'll be perfect. You'll be perfect without spot, without age, without age, without blemishes. You can see there's no age in heaven. You, you're not born there. You don't die there. You're ageless. Ageless. And and they were all ageless, all the people who greeted me at the gates, even though they had been some old and some young when they were here on earth. And we spoke a language I never heard here, but we understood each other perfectly. There's no need for questions, because when somebody says something, it's a declarative sentence, and you, understood, you understand all it ever meant. No clarification. Perfect communication. I, I, I kind of studied the people that were there at the gates to try to decide why this particular group showed up to meet me that day because they all knew I was coming. Everybody in heaven knows who's on the way. 
And so I'm looking at them, and I, I'm thinking, okay, a couple of classmates over here from high school that died right after we graduated. I'm looking at uncles and aunts, and I'm looking at teachers, and I'm looking at my relatives, and I'm looking at my next-door neighbor when I was nine years old, and I'm thinking, what do these people have in common? This is not the group I would have picked out. It's amazing. And I, I, I discovered very profoundly that it wasn't just their perfection they had in common. It wasn't just their faith in Jesus Christ that got them there that they had in common. What I discovered, and it really kind of blew me away, was everybody who greeted me at the gates of heaven helped me get there. It was just so perfect. It was so right. I mean, there were these two boys over here took me to a, a, a church when I was younger before I had a driver's license. There were people there who told me verbally about Jesus. They witnessed to me about how to go to heaven. There were people there all who, who lived the Christian life in front of me, so I knew what one was and what one talked like and what one acted like. And then Miss Norris really brought it home to me. When I was nine years old, my dad was overseas again. My grandparents lived so far from us that they couldn't take us to church, and my mother didn't have a driver's license. And I wept every Sunday morning as I watched people drive down my street to church, and I had no way to go. But Mrs. Norris found out her and her husband were foster parents, and they owned a station wagon. And what I found out was they put those kids in that station wagon every Sunday morning and drove to Summer Grove Church. But they did one more thing before they left our street. They went down to the end of it, turned around, and came down the street honking the horn on the station wagon. Boys and girls who didn't have a way to go to church could just go stand by their mailbox, and Mr. and Ms. Norris would pick you up. The window would roll down on the station wagon, and she would say, Donnie, would you like to go to the Lord's house today? And I would say, yes, ma'am. I would like to go to the Lord's house today. And she would turn around to the children in the station wagon and say this, Boys and girls, move over. Donnie's going to church with us. I climbed into the station wagon, and I knew somebody cared about me. Mrs. Norris greeted me at the gates of heaven. She deserved to be there because she helped me get there. They all did which I think brings up another very profound question this morning. New life. If we greet people at the gates of heaven that we helped get there, and we do, who will you greet? See, I think that's why we're still here, is to help everyone else get there. If you're ready, our job is to point people towards God. Our, our job is to bring people to church. Our job is to tell people about Christ. Our job is to live a Christian life in front of them so they'll know what one is. And I think we have a lot of work to do, Ohio. You've got classmates and friends and neighbors and relatives and, well, you love them here. Co-workers that you care about here, and I know you want to love them there. Tell them about Jesus. Bring them to church next Sunday. Get them involved in one of your small groups. You love them here. You'll get to love them there. Above the heads of these people was the most magnificent gate I've ever seen. There are 12 of these gates. According to Revelation 21, I was only at one. And it looked alive to me. I don't think it was a living gate, but it sure looked that way, like the inside of an oyster made of mother of pearl. And it was dazzling because the light of heaven was reflecting off of it. There is no sun or moon in heaven. They don't need one because God himself illuminates the place. And the Lamb of God here on earth becomes the lamp of God in heaven. And it's reflecting off the gate, and it is dazzling. You'd be blinded by it with your earthly eyes, but you won't have any in heaven. 
And I'm looking at that gate and I'm thinking, wow, that is awesome. But I was struck by how large and ornate it is and how small the entrance was. And so as I looked over the heads of the people, I started moving in that direction. I wanted to go through that entrance that wasn't so big. And I could see inside that there was a street that went right down the middle of the city. It is a city, a kingdom, a place. Every time the Bible talks about heaven, it does it in concrete terms. It assumes we know it's a real place. And so I'm, I want to go in, and I'm looking at the street, and you won't be surprised to know the street appears to be made out of gold. You say, well, that's impossible. Not in heaven, it's not. God can make his streets out of whatever he wants. Gold is his choice, apparently, and it's awesome. But as dazzling as that is, on both sides were these magnificent houses, structures, buildings. And they were, by any standard here on earth, what Jesus said. I quoted him earlier in our time together. In my Father's house are many mansions, if it were not so. And I can testify that they're there. You're going to like them. But now even beyond these mansions and this street is a hill high and lifted up. It's really a pinnacle. And there's a river flowing from the side of it. It's called the River of Life. And at the pinnacle of that hill is the brightest light I have ever seen, even by the standard of heaven, the one I had seen at the gates. It's the Lord high and lifted up, as well he should be. And here was my plan. As much as I enjoyed meeting these people, I wanted to go past them. I wanted to go through that gate, down that golden street, up that hill, and just fall down at his feet and say to him, thank you for letting me be here. But I didn't get to do that. I did move forward through the aroma of heaven. I did move forward through the sounds of heaven. The wings of angel, you can hear them everywhere. What a holy sound it is and comforting sound. And I did move forward through the music, which is my most vivid memory of heaven. Music was your most vivid memory? Yes, because I take it with me. I can close my eyes in front of you today, right here in this service, and I can still hear that music. And the truth is, I want you to hear it. Wow, what awesome music it was. I mean, music is a great gift from God. He likes music. And if you like music, you're going to have a terrific time in heaven. I know inside they sing songs about the sacrifice of Christ, but at the gates they were singing songs glorifying God. Hallelujah, they sang. Glory to God, they sang. Praise the Lord, they sang. And then this refrain over and over. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. Because he is holy. In fact, that's the reason we can't go. We're not. But we can be made that way. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He defeated sin and death. And so I'm listening to the music, these thousands of songs at the same time. There, there was no chaos. While there should be thousands of songs at the same time, no, they all fit together. And what a glorious sound it was. I'm actually crossing the portal now into the city, and it all stopped. The music, the aroma, the sounds, the light, it's gone in an instant. And I'm very confused, and I want to cry out to God, God, what's going on? I just got here, and I didn't get a chance. Because then penetrating the darkness is one, one sound. But this time it's not in front of me like all the rest of that was. It's behind me. It's Dick on a wrecker singing, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And I'm not very happy. Because <laughs> just as quickly as I was there, I was back here. And you can imagine in that hospital bed, for 13 months, I cried out to God, why? Why did you let me see that and take it away from me? 
I have a better answer in 2010 than I did in 1989. And here is my answer. So I could be in Ohio on a morning like this and say to you, to your face, heaven is real and Jesus is the way. Are you ready? I had a wreck on my way to church. The death rate here on earth is 100%. None of us gets out of this alive. If you think there's an urgency about this, you're right. And I want to encourage you today. A mother came a long way to see me one time just to tell me these words. Thank you for writing your book, she said. My son was killed by a car bomb in Baghdad. And I said, well, ma'am, I'm sorry for your temporary separation from him. I had gotten an email from her. I'm sorry that you've lost him for just a little while, but you know where he is and God's taken good care of it. Yes, she said. And she told me the story of how he died there on the bed, the cot in the, in the little emergency tent there in Baghdad, Iraq. And she said, I know an angel was there in the form of a nurse because she read your book to my boy as he died. And I want to come and tell you the last thing my son heard was your description of heaven. And I want to thank you for sharing it. I said to her, ma'am, I'm sorry for your temporary separation from your son. And thank you for your great sacrifice for our country. But you're going to see him again. I know, she said, but I miss him now. Let me say this to you. He's an authentic American hero, and he's safe in the arms of Jesus. But the reason he's there instead of here is because he knew the way. Jesus is the way. If I don't see you here, I want to see you there. Lord, thank you for our time together today. I pray the Holy Spirit will move in each and one of our hearts. Every service, every person in the service can make a decision today. Every person. We can all decide to share our faith. We can all decide to bring people to church. Many need to decide that they don't want to live the way they've been living anymore. They're sick and tired of being defeated. And I'm praying, Lord, that today they'll turn the page and find that new normal. And then they'll use the circumstances that have so desperately hurt them to bless someone else. It'll bless them back. And, Lord, I'm praying for those who need to make reservations in heaven this morning. We're taking reservations right now. Get the angels ready to sing because some new names will be written down in glory. And, Lord, if I don't see these people here, one day, I want to see them there. I offer this prayer in the name of the one who's building us a better place. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And would you keep your heads bowed for just the next few moments, please? We prayed earlier in this celebration that uh, God would speak a word to your heart. And I'm just curious if you would say today, Steve, God spoke to me through what Don shared, through his words. Maybe it was a word of encouragement. Maybe it was a word of hope. Maybe it was a word of conviction about something. But God had something for you today. Would you just lift your hand right now just to signify that? I needed to hear something that I heard this morning. Praise God. Many hands. Many hands. You can put your hands down. Thank you, Lord. You know, Jesus looked at a very religious man one day and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I'm going to say that to you today. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Born again. You say, well, how, how can I be born again? Well, Jesus put it this way. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin. See your life the way God sees it. And run to Jesus. Here's the gospel Paul wrote about. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. You know what the good news is? The gospel you must believe in to be born again that your sins have been died for that is such good news your sins which have been separating you from God which justly deserve the wrath of God have been died for your punishment has been taken by another the innocent sacrifice the substitute Jesus Christ himself and by repenting of your sins and believing in the gospel and surrendering your life to Jesus and trusting your life to Him, you can be born again and receive eternal life. And if God is awakening that kind of faith within you this morning, right now in this moment, you need to express that to Jesus. From right where you sit, I would encourage you to whisper a prayer to Jesus right now who's listening. And maybe you want to say something like this. Dear Jesus, Say that to him. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know my life falls short of your righteous and holy standards. Just admit it. Just be humble and admit it. I know that my life hasn't brought you much glory. But right now, in this moment, by your grace, I repent of my sin. Come to you, Jesus. I believe in you. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Just tell him that. I believe you died for my sins. And I believe you came out of that grave. Prove that you were the Son of God. And then say this Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Anyone who prays that from a sincere heart, He will. He will have mercy on you. Forgive you. Give you new life. And the assurance of an eternal home in heaven. If you prayed that with me, would you just thank Him right now? Just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Would you let me know if you did? Would you lift your hands all around the room? I prayed, Steve, that God has awakened faith in my heart. I'm repenting of my sins. I'm turning to Christ. I see probably 20, 25, 30 hands. Praise God. You put your hands down. And Jesus, we thank you. Apart from your sacrifice on that cross, 
where your body was crushed, your blood was spilled out. You took the punishment that we deserve for our sins. Apart from that, we're, we're, we're hopeless, we're lost. We'll never see heaven. We'll never see you in all of your glory. I pray that many have been born again, Lord, even today, even this morning, a spiritual birthday. We pray for Don Piper. Thank you for him, God. Would you continue to anoint him and bless him, give him strength and stamina, Lord, to share his message all over the world. We appreciate his being here with us today, Lord. May you be glorified in our lives. And Lord, we look forward to seeing you in that prepared place one day. We thank you for that wonderful promise. And I offer this prayer in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.